This is a section that uh, uh, we've read a couple of times before, and as you may remember, a couple of weeks ago, I uh, I was planning to um, preach all the way through um, to the end of the sixth chapter, or at least to the twelfth verse of chapter six, but didn't quite get there. And so, uh, so this morning I shall be focusing on on verses nine uh, to twelve. This, of course, comes in the context of uh, uh, this preacher's word of exhortation, as he calls it, uh, where he is exhorting uh, the congregation to whom he is writing to press on, to persevere, uh, not to uh, leave Christ, not to go back to the old ways of old covenant religion. And primarily, he seeks to encourage them to persevere by placarding before them the glory of Jesus Christ, particularly his high priesthood. And in this section, uh, he is exhorting uh, the, the hearers to, to go on to maturity. So let us hear the word of the Lord. About this, that is the high priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness 
to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us go on to maturity, the writer to the Hebrews says at the start of chapter 6. And that is the main exhortation in this section that I've just read. Let us go on to maturity. Let us leave behind, as he puts it, the elementary doctrine of Christ and let us grow up into Jesus Christ, our head and our savior. Let us become mature and godly Christians. And what we see the preacher to the Hebrews doing here is seeking to encourage his hearers to grow in maturity by in the first place, and we saw this last time, warning them about the danger of, of falling away. Warning them, as we see in verses 4 to 8, about the serious issue, the serious danger of apostasy, of those who were part of the covenant community who had tasted and known the blessings of belonging to the new covenant, then turning away from those blessings, going back to the old ways. And he has warned them about the the serious danger that is involved in, in doing such a thing. But now with the same end in mind, that that same end of wanting them to grow in maturity, we see the preacher... Uh, going on to talk about a quite different subject in verses 9 to 12, a subject that really couldn't be more different from from apostasy, and that is the subject of assurance. That is the focus of the verses before us this morning. The focus is the wonderful truth of assurance, of being sure that you are in a state of grace, of being sure that you are a Christian, of being sure of God's love. That's what we shall be considering this morning. And as we do so, I want to look at it, look at this passage under three headings. In the first place, I want you to notice what I've called the object of assurance, which we see in verse 9, the object of assurance. In other words, what you can be sure about. Now, you could well imagine that having just heard about the danger of apostasy and of falling away, that some in the congregation to whom this first this letter was first addressed, you could imagine them being troubled by, by what is said in verses 4 to 8, perhaps especially those who were of a more sensitive disposition. You could imagine such people fearing that they might well fall away that they might well re-crucify the Lord Jesus Christ and so find it impossible to be restored to repentance. Perhaps there are some of you who are disturbed by that kind of fear when you read a a passage like the one we looked at last time in verses 4 to 8. And it's in order to allay any such fears, as well as to provide some much-needed encouragement, that this very wise and loving preacher 
goes on to say what he does in verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Now, what the preacher here is saying to the Hebrew congregation is this. He's saying we are we are sure that whilst you have backslidden, whilst you are being tempted to turn away from Christ, we are nevertheless sure that you are genuine Christians and that you will therefore not turn away. You will repent of your sluggish ways. We are, he says, firmly persuaded of your salvation. So don't be anxious. Take the warning of apostasy seriously. But don't be anxious. Don't be fretful. Don't be worried. In terms of the illustration he gives in verses 7 and 8, what the preacher is saying to his hearers in verse 9 is, you are like that field I described in verse 7. The field that produces a crop that is useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated. You are not like the field that I've described in verse 8. The one that bears just thorns and thistles. You are not being uh, prepared for burning. You are not near to being cursed. No, you are Christians. You are good and useful Christians. You have been blessed by God and you will be blessed by God. We are sure that the better things that belong to salvation belong to you. We're sure of this. We're convinced of this. And so too should you be. That's what he's saying in verse 9. And what the preacher says here reminds us of this simple but wonderful truth that as a Christian, you can be sure that you are a Christian. You can be sure of your salvation. Indeed, as a Christian, you ought to be sure of your salvation. That's what this verse shows you. It shows you along with other parts of scripture that that you can know, you can be fully and infallibly assured that by God's grace, you are a Christian believer, that you are a son of God, that you are united to Christ, that you are indwelt by the spirit of these things. You can be sure God wants you to be sure of your salvation. God wants you to know That you belong to him. God wants you to be convinced that he has set his love upon you. After all, he is your most loving heavenly father. And what loving father doesn't want his child to be certain of his love? I want my children to know that I love them. I don't want them to be insecure or uncertain of my love. And I, of course, am a very imperfect father. How much more then does your perfect heavenly father want you to be sure of his love and sure of your salvation? Brothers and sisters, you can be sure, you ought to be sure that the things that belong to salvation belong to you. This is in many ways your 
birthright. But how can you be sure? How can you know that you truly do belong to God? Well, this brings me on to my second point this morning, what I've called the ground of assurance. The preacher has uh, spoken some very uh, comforting words to the congregation in verse 9. But are his words mere pastoral platitudes? Are they simply designed to give his hearers a bit of a boost after the bruising of uh, verses 4 to 8? Does he really mean what he says? Well, yes, yes, he does. The words that he speaks are not mere platitudes. They are certitudes. The preacher is certain, absolutely certain of the Hebrew salvation. And he goes on to give the ground for such certainty in verse 10. There he says, for God, just notice that connective there. I am sure that the things that belong to salvation are yours. Why? Because for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. Why is the writer to the Hebrews so sure of uh, these people's salvation? Well, the answer is because their lives testify to the reality that God's saving grace has entered their hearts. That's why he's so sure. Their lives demonstrate that they are truly Christian people. Their lives give ample proof that they are not hypocrites, they are not frauds, they are not self-deceived, but that they are the genuine article. Notice how the preacher speaks of their work and of their love and of their service. And it's probable, I think, in the light of what he goes on to say later on in his sermon in chapter 10, that he is thinking there in particular of the way that these Hebrews have in the past endured much persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ. How they have showed real practical concern for those who have been abused, for those who have been imprisoned. And how they have even cheerfully accepted the uh, seizure of their property. And he is saying to them, look, in all of these specific and concrete ways, you show beyond any doubt that you have been savingly united to Jesus Christ. Yes, you have backslidden somewhat. I'm not denying that. You are not what you once were. You are being tempted to return to Judaism. That's why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you so that you will return to those better ways that you once practiced. But this does not in any way negate the fact that you have exhibited the fruit of Christian faith in the past. And nor for that matter does it negate the fact that at least to some extent you are still exhibiting such fruit in the present. Notice how he talks about them serving the saints as you still do, as you go on serving. Here the preacher is giving voice to the fact that he had seen evidence 
that these people were true, genuine Christians. He had seen evidence in their, in their changed lives, in the, in the fruitfulness of their lives, in their good works, and in their loving service. He had seen that. But most importantly, of course, God had seen that. God had seen such evidence. And he, as the writer says, is not so unjust as to overlook or to forget such love and service. And in particular, God will not forget, he will not overlook how they did such things, how they worked and served and showed love for his sake. That is actually the key phrase in this verse. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. This was the key indicator, the key proof that the Hebrews were genuine believers. What really showed beyond any doubt that they were Christians is that they had worked and loved and served for the sake of God, for his name, for his glory. For all of their imperfection, for all of their inconstancy, for all of the fact that they were struggling and to some extent were backslidden, the Hebrews were yet motivated to live for the sake of God's glory. And you see, such a motive only a Christian can have. Only a Christian can have that motive. To do what they do for his sake. Many people can do good works, in a relative sense at least. Apostates can do good works. But it's only the Christian who will work and serve and love for the name and the honor and the glory of God. Because, you see, it is only the spirit of Christ in someone's heart who produces such a motive. Working, serving and loving for his sake is not a natural desire. It does not come naturally to us. By nature, we may work and serve and even love for our own sake. Doing what we do for the sake of God, that is a God-given desire. That is a spirit-wrought motive. And therefore, those who do what they do for his sake, they, they are the ones who must have been born of God. And the basic point that is being made here is this. That one ground of assurance that you can have as a Christian is that you live like a Christian. That you, albeit imperfectly and inconstantly, nevertheless bear the fruit of grace in works of love and 
of service. That is one ground of assurance. It's not the only ground by any means. And it's not, I would say, the most secure ground. The promises of God and the witness of the Holy Spirit provide you with firmer ground upon which to stand. Nevertheless, you can gain confidence about your salvation from the grace that you see in your life, from the work and the love and the service that you show for his sake. And to gain assurance from the fruit that you see in your life is not to be proud. It's not to be boastful. It's not to be self-absorbed. Actually, to recognize such fruit glorifies God. Thomas Goodwin once wrote that the Spirit first writes all graces in us and then teaches our consciences To read his handwriting. In other words, deriving assurance from your good works honors the work of the Spirit. Because it is the Spirit who enables you to do such good works in the first place. Now it is true. And you probably don't need me to remind you of this, but I will anyway. That in this life... Your motives and your actions, they will always be mixed. Of course that's the case. They will always contain much impurity. And so you shouldn't spend too long looking within to find crumbs of comfort. But even with that being said, let me just ask you this this one question. Is there... In your heart, even just a tiny smidgen of a desire to live for the sake of Christ. Just just a tiny smidgen, that's all. We want there to be more, of course, but is there even just a, a tiny, tiny smidgen of a desire to live for Christ? If there is, then you can be assured by that. Because you wouldn't have even a tiny smidgen of such desire if the spirit was not at work in your heart. So we've seen the object of assurance. We can be sure of our salvation. God wants us to be sure of our salvation. We've seen one ground of such assurance is the, the work that we do, the love that we show, the service that we express for the sake of God. And then thirdly and finally, we see in these verses the purpose of assurance. The preacher is sure that the Hebrews are saved. And he wants the Hebrews themselves to be sure of this as well. And so he goes on to say in verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The full assurance of hope. Hope is the life breath of Christianity. 
the hope of glory, the hope of enjoying that eternal Sabbath rest, the hope of the new creation. That is the life breath of Christianity. Hope is what sustains you in the darknesses and distresses of life in this world. Hope is what adds luster and vigor to your faith and obedience. And hope is what the writer to the Hebrews wants them to be fully sure of. He wants them to be fully sure that the things for which they hope will come to pass and that what they hope for they will indeed enjoy. That's what he wants them to be sure of. And he wants them, you'll notice, to be earnest in gaining such full assurance. Such full assurance of hope does not come to those who are casual. It does not come to those who are lethargic, but to those who earnestly and diligently seek it. And why is the preacher so keen that the Hebrews earnestly seek full assurance of hope? Well, he explains in verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Here we see why the writer to the Hebrews is so eager for this congregation to be earnest in seeking full assurance of hope. He wants them to have full assurance of hope because he knows that having such assurance will make them better Christians. Having such assurance, such full assurance will make them stronger and maturer and godlier Christians. It will bolster their perseverance. This, you see, is what full assurance does for the believer. Full assurance does not, as some individuals and some traditions have wrongly taught, make you complacent. It doesn't cause you to live carelessly. It doesn't lead you to say, well, because I'm sure of my salvation, well, I can live as I please. I can do whatever I want. Let sin abound that grace may abound all the more. No, the exact opposite is true, isn't it? The exact opposite. Look again at what he says in verse 12. I want you to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? So that you may not be sluggish. So that you will imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I want you to be fully assured so that you won't be sluggish, so that you won't be complacent, so that you won't be careless, so that you won't turn away. I want you to be fully assured so that you will persevere in your faith, so that you will be patient in adversity, so that you will then go on to inherit the promises. This This wise preacher knows, you see, that the fully assured Christian is the Christian who says, because I know that God loves me, because I know that he has saved me, because I am sure of my hope, therefore, I want to give my all for the Lord who gave his all for me. I want to live for him more and more. I want to press on for his sake. I want to attain those promises that he has graciously and freely made to me. This is now how I want to live because I am confident of God's love. You see, the fully assured Christian never says, let me live as I please. The fully assured Christian always says, let me live as God pleases. 
This is the great purpose of gaining full assurance of hope. To make you a happier, healthier, and holier Christian. To give you the strength that you need to persevere by faith all the way to the end. And this, of course, is something that we should all earnestly seek. Thomas Watson once said that full assurance puts a man in heaven before his time. Those who are sure of their salvation, who see the evidence of the Spirit's work in their lives and who as a result are not sluggish, but are persevering by faith. Those are the Christians who enter into the joys of heaven here below. They are put in heaven before their time. But what if you're not such a Christian? What if you lack that assurance that puts you in heaven before your time? Some of you may be in that position right now. Not quite sure of your faith, not quite sure of God's love for you. It's important to emphasize that that does not mean in any way that you are not a Christian. Being infallibly assured of your faith does not belong to the essence of faith. And what I would say to any of you who are in that position, who are lacking assurance, but who really desire it. What I would say to you is this, that while you might not be that man or that woman who has entered heaven before their time, you can know for certain that there is a man who has already entered heaven. There is a man who has already entered heaven on your behalf. There is a man who is interceding for you right now in heaven. And there is a man who will in time, without question, bring you into his heaven. Jesus Christ is that man in heaven. Jesus Christ is your heavenly high priest. Jesus Christ has saved you. And he will not let you go. He will keep you to the end. And of this, of him, you can be absolutely sure. Believe that. Even if you don't feel it, believe that. Resolve with a sheer act of your will to believe this truth. 
Jesus Christ is the one who provides you with full assurance of faith. Look out to him. He is in heaven now. Pleading on your behalf. And he will certainly bring you home to himself. Amen.